Hi. How's it going? Oh wow! Well, hey, hey. It's it's not A. It's uh um. Remind me of your name. Adrian. Adrian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's good to see you. How's she? How's there? Yeah, yeah. So it's. I've I've seen you around, kind of in the background, right? A few times. Um, yes, yes. Yeah. But is your your practice going well? Yeah, very well, very well. Yeah. Okay. Uh, not so much on the meditation, but on the spiritual progress in general. Yeah. Well, it kind of goes. What's most important, right? I mean, I think it's uh, you know how you live your life and how yeah. how you meet things, not necessarily on the cushion, more just in life. Yeah, I'm trying to put order, or not so much of maybe that's a strong word, but to fix things that I think it can be better at the mundane level first and and then we we'll talk about the other the other dimensions of spirituality <laughs> well uh in many ways it almost is all the mundane level right like um yeah i think i think so yeah and how are you doing I'm doing well. Yeah, I'm doing well. I mean, uh, sort of, I'm in the fourth month of uh, my new job and I'm really liking it. So yeah, that's going really good. Um, I also signed up for a gym, so I've been going to that. And yeah, so it's, uh, I think small things can kind of make big difference right particularly if um if the small things are um i don't know if there's there's a reward or you're able to enjoy just doing them right so like the gym that's one of those things i enjoy just doing meditation is one of those things that i just kind of enjoy doing um and then the work uh i like my job um, at least I like my field. Um, there's definitely challenges in my field. Uh, I'm a, a psychotherapist, but um, yeah, I think I, I lucked I lucked out. I feel blessed with the job that I have. Uh huh. That's good. Have you heard about the stuff with Chuladasa? Oh yeah. No, that, that's one of those reasons why I wanted to come just a tiny little bit early because I was like, oh, wow, maybe you can, can start talking about it. I don't know how much, I imagine, I don't know how much we will talk about it. Maybe it will be a lot, probably a lot because I think people will have questions about it or maybe not. So yeah, I've heard. <laughs> I, I've also heard. I was, I'm very surprised. Yeah, yeah I didn't surprising. Expect- no, neither did I. <laughs> I think um, because, well, if you look on one hand, like his crimes, I'll use that word, 
uh, are not that bad. I mean, it's more the big. The worst thing is is he's like, uh, what is it like this this horn dog? <laughs> well, that and then the um, the funds, right? Using some funds to you know pay his mistresses or his yeah, know, well, prostitutes. he has that. I mean, he has only. He hasn't said that he used funds. I mean, but that was that was an accusation, I think, right? That's what the board yes. was saying. Yeah. Yes. Also, he has admitted to to have committed uh, adultery. Yeah. And uh, but we don't know if it was with with prostitutes, with regular woman. Uh, or if he used uh, the money he received in, in Patreon for that. Mm -hmm. Well, I was very shocking. Like, I didn't expect that from from Chuladas. No, and I think that's that's the part that right that people struggle with. Not in this case. Luckily, it's not like the crime. There's like, oh my god, how is this? Um, you know, because some of those people were just abusing their students, um, uh, you know, abusing kids and all sorts of really horrible, horrible stuff. I mean, this stuff is bad, but it's more, I mean, um, well, it's, it, he, was, I guess, he, he would, he, if he was abusing students, then shut off the, the film and, and we got to other things because... I mean, he was supposed to be an Arhan. Well, so exactly that. And so, so that's the thing, right? It's, it's the higher standard, right? And it's the falling short from that higher standard. And he, um, and it's, and the thing is with this, it's not, you can't blame it on the sort of the, the student's projections, right? He, he was the one who, um, I don't know, if he didn't explicitly say, he definitely went along with um, sort of, you know, uh, kind of moral perfection with the Arhans. It, well, definitely as you get to the higher past, it's like you just, you wouldn't be doing this type of stuff, right? And so then it's like, well, what I happened? Mean, you're supposed to overcome the mundane attachments at first path, right? Like No. No? Definitely not a first path, no. <laughs> okay. Well, so, okay, maybe I should, maybe I should rewind that. Um, some people say, some of the most strictest interpretations say yes, right? And I think for that, it does seem more with monastics because actually they, they start with the strictest sort of, uh, you know, they start as a renunciate. <laughs> yeah, well, but I think that's fake. Like, it, I mean, that's my opinion. Uh, it's not the same to renunciate than to repress yourself, mm -hmm. and I think they are way more repressed than uh, than they have actually overcome the, the desires. Yeah, I mean that's probably. I mean, if you have overcome the desires, why do you need the rules? <laughs> why do you yeah. need to force yourself to not do that? Yeah, so this just opens up that wider debate, and um, and of course, yeah, the sad part is that it does feel like Chuladasa wasn't honest about, um, or he was yeah. hypocritical, right? 
That's what it, it, it strongly, you can't, I don't think you can walk away without some of that impression, right? If you, if you, um, yeah, because I think that's, it's just the honest, um, that's what you would think, right? And he, he could have, he could have done more to have been more honest. Um, I mean, it would be very easy to do. I mean, you just had to, okay, I don't want to keep the marriage going. (laughs) I like sex. (laughs) And I don't want to, I don't want to continue this way. And and you can do it because I I would, I don't think it's bad. I, I understand it's pleasant and it's fun and all of that. But lying and hiding it and... I mean, I, I haven't taken the, the boat, the presets, and but theoretically he has broken them. And why do you take the presets if you don't like them? <laughs> well, and yeah, it is the case that, um, so like the precepts are to be training precepts, but, um, yeah, he he definitely you know he he went pretty he was he was he he went out of bounds right he went off track. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the letter sets ten women. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, exactly. It, it wasn't just I, like I thought he was sick, like he had health problems. <laughs> I think well he was, but like you know, that's a, a plus in in his his vitality, right? <laughs> I'm Maybe sorry, that's guys. power meditation. What happened? Sorry. I <laughs> you <like>. don't know. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, it's so, yeah, for those who by chance don't know, mostly as I guess it'd be people who don't follow the Reddits. <laughs> um, so Chula Dasa, um, first there was an email sent out um, from the board, right? The board includes his senior students, the co-authors of The Mind Illuminated, and his wife, right? Signed off on a letter saying that Chula Dasa was, um, you know, engaging in sexual misconduct, adultery with, with other women. It was, I think, 10 women is what they said. Some of those women were prostitutes. Um, there was no students were involved, um, but... And it also seems like uh, Chula, they also say that Chula Dasa was using some funds um, to pay the, either the, or pay the prostitutes or siphon off to some of the, the mistresses or something. So yes, there, there was some definite misconduct of sexual nature. Yeah. So on, on the Reddits, of course, like, yeah, there's just, that's what I think half of the posts on not just the the mind illuminated, although maybe less so on mind illuminated, but definitely more than half on the the stream entry that subreddit had just been on people in reaction in different ways, right? Just trying to process this. What, what does it mean? How could this have happened? And all sorts of reactions. I'm, I'm thinking of like the whole cycles of, of grief, right? Um, you know, denial, anger, bargaining. <laughs> But it's also open to debate, I think, again, um, about, yeah, what what should we expect of our teachers? 
what's realistic about um, insight and awakening and this yeah. path and meditation, um, which is good, I think, right? That is one thing that's good to just to take a look at it and have another light. But the sad thing is, of course, I think some, some people, maybe many people, um, sort of just get disillusioned, right? And think, oh, because this happened to Chula Dasa, that means it's all crap. I mean, it's not, if, if you have practiced spirituality uh, in a proper way, you probably would have experienced spiritual progress. So you, you already know firsthand that it is not crap. That, uh, I mean, at least I have experienced an uh, enormous uh, decrease in psychological suffering. But it actually, I mean, I, I think that the, the, the thing with Chuladasa actually says something about what you can expect from the higher paths and, and behavior, morals, and, and losing attachments completely like he has practiced his whole life he he knows meditation better than probably most of us so i mean he's not a regular person my view and <laughs> yeah know. no and, and i think you are mostly right i think you're mostly right in the sense that like there is something away that we are human and you know, there's a complexity to it. Um, and oftentimes you kind of the views of attachment, right? These views of, of overcoming behavior become like overly simplistic. Like, I mean, like really what, what does it mean to overcome craving, right? What, what does it mean to over sense desire? What does it mean to overcome, you know, wrong view? And then you listen to people talk and they, of course, not only sound very different in what they say, um, yeah, they just present very, very different. And I, I think um, that's just something to keep in mind. Not, not to say that like the whole thing is crap, because yeah, I, I definitely do not think so. There's, there's definitely something to this whole awakening. But, um, you know, the whole, you know, what is it? The level <laughs> system of insight and the seeing it as almost this, um, you know, two-dimensional right. thing right you're just your your progress 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 and and be, you know you wherever you are that means something about what you're capable of right you can never fall back or anything like that and that to me is not realistic right our models are definitely not realistic maybe that's what i think yeah i i i also was thinking about the theory, like theoretically, the, the, the noble truths say what they say. First cause of, of suffering is craving and the ultimate cause is the identification with the self. So theoretically, if you get to achieve the insight and propagate the realization through your mind system, you should theoretically stop uh, craving and lose the attachments with the insights. Um, well, it's not that, that simple, probably because you need a certain level of meditation to be able to see it clearly, to mature the insights, but that's what Chulas is supposed to theoretically have, right? So, Adrian, can I ask a question here? Oh, yeah, of course. 
I, uh, yeah. The question I have uh, is, do you think that um, if you have a certain level of insight, then the body can no longer age? Obviously not. I mean, that's physical thing. It's not mental. Right. So uh, do you see what I'm pointing to here? No. Oh. Um, do you have any elderly relatives? Yes. Yeah. So have you ever noticed that um, as they get older, their judgment tends to... Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So I don't know if that's what's going on here, but I think it's one thing to be aware of. Um, yeah. That, uh, doing these practices, I think, uh, can have a really dramatic effect on our lives and make our lives a lot better, but it doesn't stop the process of aging. It doesn't stop the process of senescence. Um, part of... Uh, one, I mean, for me, one of the things that's been really nice about this process is that I no longer uh, fear that the way I used to. It's not to say that I never have any uh, reaction to that, but um, but nevertheless, you know, I mean, I, I have a mom who who um, can't get up out of bed, can't get up out of a chair on her own, and. Um, she had a stroke when she was in her late fifties and her judgment was massively changed by that stroke. Um, <clears throat> and I think that one of the things that we need to remember as practitioners is that um, just because we're able to get to a certain wonderful place right now and uh, we are experiencing the ability to be so mindful that uh, we can't, screw up right now doesn't mean that that's going to persist right and um that is to say you know i think you know the the experience of 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 uh non non-reactivity to pain you know that that means that we don't experience intense suffering i think that can probably stick around but um but it doesn't mean like, you know, if, if I have some strong mindfulness, it's really a result of my meditation practice um, that's allowing me to restrain myself or to control my behavior in a way um, that when that mindfulness drops as I grow older, um, I may have been counting on that mindfulness to uh, produce results that it no longer produces. Um, so um, anyway. How many people are here who want to talk about what happened with Chula Dasa and how many people are here who want meditation advice? <laughs> Maybe the people who want meditation advice, could you raise your hands? There's a, oh great. Uh, people who want to talk about Chula Dasa and all of that, can you raise your hands? Okay. So I'm in the undecided or whichever comes up category. Yeah. But, so, I mean, the I don't know case. They also feel like pretty connected topics. They Sorry? Do. They also feel like pretty connected topics. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, this is Kevin. I want to jump in because Edel and I were talking about this morning. One thing that we've noticed is just before, not to get political, but, you know, there was a time in our political life in America when things were pretty stable and things were pretty even. And, you know, when you have something tumultuous happen, it, it yes, it's disturbing, but it also brings to sharp focus issues that never would have arisen otherwise. And it feels like there's a lot of very insightful questions being raised on Reddit, 
a lot of really, really cutting to the core and the bone of practice. It's arisen as a result of this. And so I'm like, want to talk, I don't want to talk about the, the salacious stuff, but it does raise a lot of core practice questions that really were on the fringe, but are really being brought into focus now. And that's one thing I'm interested in is what's manifesting with everyone as to like, some people are doubting the path. Some people are not. Some people are doubt, wondering what fourth path is or isn't or mm-hmm. not. Some people are worrying about, I'm getting older. You know, is, is age, what's the connection between aging and attainment in the path? Yep. For me personally, my father is a Korean War veteran and he is declining mm-hmm. and his mental, he's, he's having co- a severe cognitive decline. And I know for me personally, the TMI practice and to a certain extent finders as well has really aided my ability to have compassion for that transition. Yep. And yet now, to the extent that it might be possible, that this might be an element at work with Chuladasa as well, it comes full circle for me in yeah. ways that I never would have imagined before. So, you know what I mean? I mean, there's a lot of issues about to, to, how, how this affects practice. And I, that's part of what I'm interested in hearing from the group as to what's arising as they're examining their practices as well. It gives a lot of focus. Yep. All right, well, so, um, what I would suggest, we're, uh, we, tend to, we tend to spend like quite a long time on each question. I have a feeling that there are a lot of people who want to bring something up here. Um, and I also don't want to hog the mic. Um, but uh, what I would suggest is that anybody who would like to say something, raise your hand. And I'll just go call on you in the order of hand raising. Try to keep whatever you have to say quick, um, you know, like a couple minutes most. Um, and then if you want a particular answer or you want somebody to speak to whatever it is that you've said, explicitly say that. Like, so if you want me to say something, tell me that you want me to say something. If you want, uh, you know, Kevin or Jolt or somebody to say something, say that. And we'll go on from there. Does that sound okay? Just one thing, by raising your hand, you don't mean like this, you mean no, like clicking. I mean, raise your hand in the, in the chat thing, because that gives me a, a, an actual order that I can then call on people. Ah, Guido's fast. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So just at your leisure, raise your hand. Uh, Guido, since you raised your hand, you get to go first. Hey, thank you. Well, I, I've been the whole week uh, going through... S- sadness and disappointment and also wondering uh, if it's but I, I, I guess most of this uh, must be I'm sorry I guess most of this uh, must be uh, shared feelings with other people but uh, if I want to cut down to, to the point that I'm most interested in is uh, I'm worried that if I follow this path I might become something I don't want to I don't like it. I am uh, because I had this role model uh, in, in Chularasa that I really wanted to aim for. So I was willing to follow TMI and I have faith that that would lead me to, have, to, to become the person I want to be. But if this system is going to have some, uh, I don't know, some. Uh, severe problems that 
produce this kind of behavior, then I don't want it anymore. So I'm, I'm, I'm very confused. I, I, for the past uh, two years, I've been following this very focused and now I don't know where I am. Okay. Would you like me to speak to that? Yes, please. Okay. So um, I think actually you brought up some, some points that it's probably worth uh, uh, exploring in a little detail. I don't know how much uh, you guys have, have followed uh, what Chula Das has posted on Dharma Treasure. He's got um, a lot of uh, videos, uh, or it's not videos, a lot of audio, a lot of other stuff on Dharma Treasure. And some of the stuff that he's got talks about his own life and the problems that he's been through. And he's also done a number of interviews where he's talking about that. Um, and one of the things that he says, I think it's one of the adverse effects of meditation um, talks, is that when he was younger, uh, he suffered from bipolar disorder. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mute you, Guido, uh, but feel free to unmute. Um, actually, it didn't work. Oh, well. Uh, so anyway, so, so the point is that Chuladasa, and Chuladasa, by the way, has also talked about um, having experienced severe abuse from his parents when he was, particularly from his father when he was a child. Um, and uh, so thinking that you're going to experience the same result that Chula Dasa experienced um, because you do this practice. Uh, I mean, I think it's, it's worth keeping your eyes open to that possibility, but I don't think that's actually the case. Um, I've been studying Buddhism for about 20 years. And uh, so I started studying Buddhism in the Tibetan tradition and in the Tibetan tradition, there are a series of teachings by, uh, Arya Asanga and uh, Master Kamala Shila. And um, those teachings are essentially synonymous with what Chuladasa's book TMI talks about. So they're, it's, what you're getting from TMI is a more detailed presentation of some of the same stuff that has been present in the lineage since forever. Not forever, but for thousands of years. At least, I mean, so Master Kamala Shila would have been like 800 to 900 AD roughly. Um, so this is like very old stuff. Um, hmm. Well, Guido dropped off. Uh, I guess he'll catch this on the recording. Um, anyway, so so the point is that this is you know, and I don't I don't like the idea of, of relying solely on lineage because um, I think that we should be skeptical. I think that we should learn new things. I think you know, there's this idea in Buddhism that like all of what was true and great was discovered 2,500 years ago and everything since then has been a decline. Um, Guido, uh, I'm recording this so you can catch the, what you missed on the recording. Um, so, so there's this model in Buddhism that basically Buddhism, the Buddha's time was the peak and everything from then on is downwards. Um, and I think that that's, uh, that doesn't really match with what we see in the world. And it's, and I don't think that it's something that the Buddha taught either. Actually, if you read the Diamond Cutter Sutra, um, the Buddha talks about a time when there will be, like he says, amazing people <laughs> who are totally unafraid of emptiness. And, and you know, so, so basically he's, he's talking about, um, you know, things, in, you know, the, the, the realizations of the Dharma increasing over time rather than decreasing. And I think that 
we should be a little skeptical about this idea that things get worse over time. So, so relying solely on the wisdom of the lineage isn't good enough. We need to also be skeptical. We need to learn. We need to understand what's happening. And so with that in mind, knowing that, that uh, Chuladasa had some pretty severe problems when he was a child, um, it's not unreasonable to think that what's going on right now is actually coming out of that and not out of his meditation practice. I'm not saying you must accept that, but I think it's a reasonable conjecture. Um, and then the question is, can we learn something from this? Uh, can we avoid, uh, you know, would it have been possible for Chuladasa to have avoided this if, if, if he had done things differently? Could we have helped him to avoid this? Uh, and I think that, and I'll try and not monologue forever on this, but I do want to get a little bit of this idea out. I think that Sangha is very important here. And I think that one of the dangerous things that the lineage teaches us is that um, once a person has had certain realizations, they are no longer capable of making mistakes ever again, and that their bodies are perfect, and that their minds are perfect, and that they have reached enlightenment, and everything will be fine from then on. And therefore, if they do something weird, either we misunderstood, or it was weird, but it was the right thing to do. And therefore we shouldn't say anything, right? And if you, if you go to any Buddhist monastery or if you go to any Buddhist Sangha, um, chances are very good that that is the exact culture that you will see. Don't say anything negative about the teacher. If you see something wrong, it's your problem, not the teacher's problem. Um, and you are not as good as the teacher. You are not as insightful as the teacher. Your viewpoint is not relevant. Um, these are really bad ideas and we need to drop them. And um, so, and I, I say this because I think, you know, I've, I've seen this before. I, I've been through three different teachers having problems like this. Uh, two of them actually committed uh, uh, acts of quite inappropriate behavior. One of them was accused, but, but didn't really do what he was accused of, although he did stuff that some people didn't like. Um, and so this is a real, this is a theme. And, uh, you know, if you look at regular people, they also have problems like this. We were hoping that the, the Dharma would solve our problems for us. And I think it does solve some of our problems, but we need to just wake up to the fact that it doesn't solve all of our problems just by having realizations and move on from there. So I monologue for a really long time. Uh, I apologize. I, I would like to keep this a little bit short per person. So uh, let's go to James and let James have the floor. Yeah, thanks, Ted. Um, I'm not gonna say very much at all. Uh, personally, I don't know how I have reacted exactly, but it's been interesting to see the reactions in the group that Andrea and I take part in. Um, and there's been a lot of people that have, have reacted quite strongly. And as many people have already said, really kind of threw doubt on their practice. Uh, the other side of it are the people that have reacted in a similar way as I think I saw Peter articulate on the subreddit, where it's given them a certain amount of... Um, freedom in their practice now almost uh, allows them to um, not hold themselves up to what they may have actually felt was a, a um, unattainable role model um, and maybe given them a bit of courage to uh, look further afield than just what's written in the book 
Um, and maybe that was a realization that I had with my practice, having had an experience that didn't unfold exactly as it was described in the book. Um, but I guess the main reason that I'm here is just to see how other people are reacting as well. Um, and for me, I think it's been a source of really great practice. Um, I personally haven't questioned too many things as a result of it, but I've heard a lot of my friends that have. Um, and it's always good to hear other people's viewpoints and how other people respond to those viewpoints as well. So I guess I'm here just to, to show a bit of support and um, to act like this uh, a sangha of some description um, and just see what people have to say. And thank you as well, Ted. I think you've been uh, the ever-resounding um, voice of many lines of reason. So thanks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks, James. Um, okay, so let's see. Uh, Riff, you're next. I have a couple different topics, but maybe I'll talk about one and then uh, put it down and raise my hand again and go to the back of the queue to talk about the other to give people a chance. Um, I guess the thing I wanted to talk about is that um, this whole situation has really called into question to me sort of the uh, relationship between, you know, the Eightfold Path and the meditation practice. So, um, you know, I was recently reading, actually for the first time, um, Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, which I assume many of us have read. And, you know, I thought the perspective there was pretty interesting. And, you know, it, you hear something similar there to what you hear everywhere, which is, you know, you should live by this Eightfold Path, you know, right action, right livelihood, you know, do these things. But right now, I feel like the connection between that and the meditative practices is actually pretty weak. Because it seems like the people who have, you know, the teachings often tell you, you need to progress down that path to progress down a meditation path. But then if you look at all these advanced teachers who screwed up, right, what they've done is they've, you know, you claim to have these very high attainments, but they have, you know, taken these actions that are not um, consonant with the path at all. And in fact, are farther off the path than I would have been even before I started. Like I never would have done those things. And so that makes me feel like, you know, you know, as a scientist, I'm always kind of looking for the simplifications and sort of saying, hey, actually, maybe like, you know, this meditative practice is like, you know, a mental training, it's mind tricks. And the actual connection to moral life there is, you know, even though it shows up all the time in Buddhism, is actually very, very weak. Like, like, the one argument that I buy is if you live morally, like maybe your life is, maybe you're, um, Maybe your thoughts are a little bit less scattered and that helps you to focus on the practice, but that's a pretty weak connection. And I guess I wanted to get uh, your take on that, Ted. Okay. Um, so I think that's a really good question and I tend to agree with what you've said. Um, I, I, there are a couple of things to say about that. One is um, to observe, you, you, you probably, like, you know, you know this sort of truism that psych majors tend to go into psychology because they have problems? Um, I think that's also true of, of Dharma teachers. And um, so, and you know, I, I, I include myself in that, right? I, I don't know if you've been following every word that I've, hopefully you haven't been following every word that I've said on, uh, on the subreddit because it's been kind of a lot. But, um, but you know, I did not have a great uh, childhood. I did not have a great uh, 20-year-old-hood. 20 um, I have issues. And one of the reasons that I got into the Dharma is I mean, there, basically there's two reasons. One is because I wanted to be happy and the other is because the world just seemed incredibly unfair to me and it seemed like the Dharma gave me an angle into that. So, um, but the part that I want to emphasize is 
I was kind of fucked up. <laughs> and I think that if you look at, you know, a lot of these major Dharma teachers who have these things that go wrong with them, um, they would probably, if they were being honest, and many of them will be honest about this, including Chuladasa, they will say the same thing, that they were kind of fucked up. And uh, so the fact that they go off the rails could be an indication that there's something wrong with meditation and that meditation helps you to go off the rails. Or it could just be that like they were going to go off the rails anyway, and maybe they would have gone way farther off the rails if they hadn't been doing Dharma practice. I'm just putting those out as conjectures. I'm not saying that's true. Um, and then uh, I think that, you know, another thing that's true is that uh, there tends to be, uh, people tend to think that like emptiness is sexy, right? Realizations are sexy. Everybody wants to have realizations. Those are the fun part of, of Dharma practice. And, you know, this Vinaya stuff, the, the, the teachings on ethics and, and you know, uh, the practice of virtue, whatever you want to call it, are boring. Um, and I've actually encountered very few teachers who uh, were able to help their students to navigate that. So, um, you know, one of my teachers, uh, Geshe Michael Roach, who had some rather fun accusations put against him was actually uh, very emphatic about the importance of uh, the teachings on virtue, the practice of virtue, and made that one of the core parts of, of what he taught when he started teaching. Um, and I got a lot out of that. Uh, and I think that we as potential teachers should keep that in mind. Um, it's for me, the challenge and I think that this, this is actually uh, part of our problem. The challenge is the stuff that Geshe Michael taught me had a whole bunch of cultural baggage in it that I think is harmful. Um, and so I don't feel comfortable teaching what he taught me because I actually feel like I was damaged by some of the things that he taught. Um, and yet at the same time, some other things that he taught were extremely valuable and important. And so like if I were gonna start teaching Sheila, right? how would I start teaching Sheila? What, what resource would I start with? And the problem is I don't have a good resource. And I think that that may be part of the problem that we have generally, that we have these resources that are in some ways good and in other ways very badly cult culturally damaged and we don't really have a resource that we can rely on and so we wind up not doing it. And I think that if you look at what Chuladasa did, I mean, he was like, well, you know, I could be teaching any one of the Eightfold Paths. Here, I'll do meditation because I know that one really well. And, and then, you know, and I'll get to the Vinaya book later. And here we are like, you know, 10 years later and we don't have the Vinaya book. So, and you know, maybe Chuladasa wasn't the right person to write the Vinaya book, or maybe he's exactly the right person to write the Vinaya book. We'll see. <laughs> but, uh, but either way, yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a definite lack of emphasis on, uh, on practicing virtue in most of the, uh, teachings that we get, or if we get a teaching on the practice of virtue, it's so sort of moralistic that it's hard to take seriously. And um, so, uh, so uh, I, personally, I would say, first of all, I do not think that practicing meditation and awakening is going to cure your problems with morality, right? Um, and secondly, I think that uh, we need to to take this seriously as, as, as fellow practitioners, as part of a, a lineage that has had some problems and uh, see if we can figure out a way to, to approach this. Um, I've actually, I've been thinking about writing a book for a long time and this 
recent uh, event has made me think again about writing a book. And, and I think that one of the key elements of my book is going to have to be a modern take on the practice of virtue, which is a little bit shirty, right? Because like, who am I to tell you how to practice virtue? And who am I to say that the stuff that I got from Geshe Michael is wrong and what I think is right is right? But somebody's got to do it. And, and, and I think that the, the attitude to have about this is that we should be experimental about this. Like, if I write something up, you shouldn't read it and think, oh, wow, Ted is a wise master. I will take refuge in Ted and, and uh, believe everything that he says. What you should do is read it and then criticize it. And we should all do that. We should all be criticizing each other, not in a bad way, but in a helpful way, in a, you know, I think you missed this point. You know, I think that you should think about this thing, you know, or, you know, I think that what you said about this isn't correct and here's why. Not, you are the high holy lama and your word is inviolate. <laughs> we can't do that. I think that that is the, that is the feedback mechanism that's missing. So, does that help? Okay. Uh, Lewis is next. Uh, okay, yeah, my worry is about that meditation maybe just like covers up suffering, like you have suffering and then you put layers onto it. Like a month ago, the co-author of um, The Mind Illuminated wrote an article about uh, how you wake up and cleaning up are two different things. And then he talked about how he went home after a retreat and then got in a fight with his wife. But I would say you would only like call it a fight if you are suffering so, so it should fall under the waking up part which is uh, which should release or where you should transcend suffering and that's also my thought with Chula Dasa that he was really good at meditating and then covered up his suffering with it yeah that's basically it and I would appreciate if you could respond to that yeah, uh, so I think that's that's a uh, good insight. I think that's uh, that's exactly right. Essentially, um, we if you if you look so so you know I've I've studied with Je Jeffrey Martin and Jeffrey Martin has uh, a ton of ideas about uh, awakening and has collected a lot of data and so he he has these this list of locations which seem weirdly similar to but not exactly the same as the uh, the four paths of enlightenment, right? And uh, the way he describes it, the experience of suffering gets less and less. And it's not necessarily that the conditioning that was causing the suffering has gone away. It's just that the connection between the, the pain and the mental suffering has gone away. And so as you say, that becomes a mask. So, so it seems like somebody who's in his location four, which would be sort of the equivalent of fourth path, not exactly the same. Shuladasa is really down on that, uh, but uh, take that for what it's worth. But um, but his his definition of location four is that you don't experience emotions, and that includes negative emotions. Obviously, you are in a place that is very free. Uh, you also don't experience agency. You don't think that you're in control of your actions. Um, and you could see where that would be a recipe for disaster if you're not if your Sheila isn't very good. Um, and so, uh, and then if you look at, uh, I mean, there's, a, there's this huge body of work now in the, in the, in the, the awakening community about growing up versus waking up. And, 
that totally matches my experience. Um, you know, my experience of, uh, call it stream entry if you want, um, my experience of that was that a whole bunch of problems that I was having, I stopped having, but uh, there were quite a few behaviors that I had that were no longer restrained. Uh, and fortunately, I feel fortunate, I spent 15 years studying with Geshe Michael Roach, and he was very emphatic about uh, uh, Sheila. And, uh, and regardless of my complaints about certain aspects of what he taught, I think that the, the teaching as a whole was incredibly good. And I feel like that really helped me to navigate that, um, that transition so that I would notice behaviors that I realized were unwholesome and uh, restrain them. And uh, so, yeah, so, so I, think that, um, I think that we should all have in mind that we have two tasks, not one. You know, one task is have realizations. Those are great. But the other task is grow up, like do the work to clean up all of our, all of our, that's a very high bar, right? I don't think that it's realistic to think that you're going to get rid of all of your negative conditioning. By negative conditioning, I mean conditioning that produces adverse results when it goes off, right? Like, you know, somebody says something that offends you and you yell at them. That's, that's an adverse result. You yelled at them. So cleaning up the negative conditioning is essentially orthogonal to awakening. Awakening can give you the ability to clean it up faster, but it also gives you the ability to not suffer when it happens, as you were saying. And so you might not be motivated to clean it up. And so you need to go into this with the idea that you're going to do that work and not just like, you know, enjoy the wonderful feeling of not suffering because it is wonderful. Um, you know, even at like my not our hot, level, it's wonderful. It is wonderful the amount of not suffering that I'm doing. Um, but that doesn't mean that I don't have to do the work to clean up my negative actions. Like I don't, you know, so anyway, I don't want to go on forever about this, but, but basically, yes, you are 100% right. And we need to do that. So thank you. Um, um, I would just, my question was more about that, like meditation suppresses ah. suffering and it is still there. Yeah. Anyway, that's my word. Uh, oh, so would you say, can you do unwholesome behavior that you don't suffer mm. during it? And it's just, you just see that it's not like a nice thing to do. Right. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. That's, that's a good point. I apologize. I didn't actually answer that question. Um, so, yeah. So this is sort of the idea that, that like your subjective experience your subjective conscious experience changes, but what's going on underneath doesn't change. And so you're essentially fooling yourself. Is that, would you say that's accurate? Yeah. It's like, for example, kind of like if you would take drugs and then once the drugs wear off, all the stuff is still there. Yeah. Right. Uh, well, I mean, essentially that's, that's sort of the same thing that I was talking about, but from a different angle. Right. And, and the answer is, yeah, the stuff is the stuff. Well, yeah. So when you have the awakening experience, um, I think that some conditioning does actually get uh, cleaned up just, just because of that. Um, but it's some, it's not all by a long shot. And um, a lot of the really big problems that you have probably don't get cleaned up. Like 
it's only the really low hanging fruit I think that 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 get caught caught easily in the awakening process, and then you have to, like there's all of this like this deep thicket of like stuff that you have to dig through, and so yeah the the meditation process can make that uh can make those triggers not go off as often, and so you can imagine that they're not there anymore, and uh potentially especially if you get into the later stages, you could probably get to the point where your mindfulness is so strong that you notice the triggers going off, but um, you stop them before they do anything negative, right? So you don't get the adverse outcome, but the conditioning is still there. Um, and uh, yeah, that is a very real problem. And if you talk to people who meditate for a while and have really great experiences and then stop meditating, they can confirm your, your hypothesis about the whole drug thing, right? Like, you know, when you're, when, you're, uh, when you're on drugs, everything's fine. And then when you come down, everything isn't fine again. Um, and the same thing can be true of meditation. So yeah, uh, that's, um, that is true. Uh, it does seem to be the case that uh, when you go from, uh, from a, a state, so something you, you're able to develop because of your meditation practice to a trait, which is something that's, that, that's a learned behavior that, doesn't, that, that, that isn't coming out of your meditation practice, um, that those traits do tend to persist. So um, I haven't actually done the experiment of, of stopping my meditation practice because like, why would I? But um, some people do. And, and they still wind up having, and also, by the way, some people don't get into awakening through meditation, right? And so they still get that state to trait tr transition, and it still seems to persist. Um, sometimes it persists for a long time, and then something happens, and it stops, and they're back to where they were because, and, and, and my theory about this is they didn't do the work, right? They didn't do the growing up part. They just did the awakening part and the awakening part uh, was fragile because they hadn't done the growing up part. So, yeah. So, but I, I don't think that means that meditation is bad or not worth doing. It's just that it's not enough. Does that help? Yeah, it does. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's go on to Tom. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about how, how I'm feeling directed or led by the situation. Um, I'm, I'm feeling encouraged to focus less on awakening per se, and more just on reducing suffering. Um, and something that seems really important to me about that is the idea that only kindness works. Um, I've never been satisfied or happy with what happens when I act out of anger or negative emotion. Um, and lately I've been trying to use kindness and stay with kindness. And, and that really seems to be a productive direction for me. Yep. I also have the sense that, um, Mindfulness isn't something, isn't something. It's, we can't get it and then have it. I mean, you were talking about it as a trait, Ted, and, and I can see that, but I'm only as mindful as I've been in the last 10 seconds. You know, if I stop being mindful and get into a fight with my wife or whatever, you know, that's not where I want to go. I have to stay on top of it. 
that's all I wanted to say. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Looks like Riff is back. Yeah, I actually have a couple more, maybe a quick one and then a quick, another quick one. Um, I feel like a lot of Buddhist traditions, you know, this one a little bit less, but, um, you know, especially like Vajrayana traditions, as far as I can tell, you know, they have this very strong tradition of um, guru trust. And that seems to actually be something that goes back, you know, through the literature and that you see today. And, you know, on the one hand, I can see the benefit of that because, you know, there's some kind of notion of like feeling like you have to not control everything and having a sense of surrender. Uh, but at the same time, overall, like I'm finding myself uh, very, very skeptical of any path that involves a lot of guru trust just because of this endemic problem of uh, gurus messing up. And so I guess I kind of wanted to get your take on that. Yeah, so, uh, so I was a student in one of those traditions uh, for 15 years. And um, one of the things they tell you right at the beginning is that um, if you go in into the practice of guru yoga, um, it is extremely dangerous. It may be very effective, but it is extremely dangerous. This is not a joke. Um, and the challenge is that um, if you have a guru who is not being clear about this, either because they don't know any better or because they're trying to mislead you, which I think happens. Um, they won't tell you that, that one of the essential aspects of guru yoga is uh, that you, while you're seeing the teacher is totally pure and perfect, you still behave as if they are not. Right. So if the teacher does something inappropriate, you still call them on it. Um, and the fact that the teacher has done something that seems to you to be inappropriate does not mean that it's okay to do that thing yourself or that it was okay for the teacher to have done it. Um, seeing the teacher is totally pure means seeing everything the teacher does as a teaching. And so if the teacher does something improper, then guess what? You get to struggle with that. You get to figure out what to make of it. You get to figure out what the message was. Personally, I have to say, um, you know, I go back and forth on this because on the one hand, I, I think that it worked out fairly well for me in the sense that I now have a pretty good handle on how to do that. But on the other hand, it was 15 years. Um, and uh, there were other practices I probably could have done that would have been better. Uh, but the bottom line is that, that um, I think if you, if you are going to, uh, first of all, I don't particularly recommend doing guru yoga. Um, I think it's, as you say, quite dangerous. Um, finding a guru that, that, that you can really be safe with is almost an insurmountable problem. When, uh, so there's a story of uh, uh, Master Asanga. Uh, I think it's Master Asanga. 
no, no, sorry, not Master Asanga, Master, the Lord Atisha, right? Lord Atisha uh, is famous for having brought the Mahayana teachings to Tibet. And so he had a teacher named Saralingpa, which means the guy from, from the island of Saraling, which is Sri Lanka. Uh, so Saralingpa was his teacher. And he, when he decided to take on Saralingpa as his teacher, he went to the island of Sri Lanka um, in a little scary boat which uh, was a dangerous crossing that he could have died on, but he didn't. Uh, and he waited 20 years. He, he studied Serlingpa's behavior for 20 years before he took him on as a Lama, 20 years. Um, and that's something that the Tibetan lineage actually makes a really big deal about. Like they don't, they don't just mention that in passing, they highlight that. Um, and, they, and the reason is that that's how long it probably would take for you to figure out that the person that you are tempted to follow and to practice guru yoga with is maybe, maybe <laughs> okay to do guru yoga with. Uh, you definitely don't want to do guru yoga with somebody that you just met two months ago. No matter how charismatic they are, no matter how sweet their teachings seem to be, you, you, you don't want to do that. That's, that's not a good idea. And that also ties into the tradition that, that um, guru-disciple relationships of that kind tend to be very uh, small, very small clusters, right? It would be weird for uh, somebody to have a guru-yoga relationship with somebody who had a guru-yoga relationship with 100 other people. That, that's just, in, in history until fairly recently, that would just never happen. And now for some reason, it's very common. Siri was uh, confused by that statement. <laughs> anyway, um, so, so yeah, so guru yoga, uh, very dangerous, uh, not recommended. Uh, if, if you want to do it, make sure that you check out the teacher really, 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 really thoroughly. Um, I think it does work, but there are a lot of other practices that work too, so why not try one of them? Um, so anyway. I had another thing I wanted to share, although I could give someone else a chance. Yeah, let's, let's uh, let, uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce that G, but let's let Gary on go next. Thanks. Um, I have a bit of a, uh, a question and a warning before that. The warning kind of comes from the situation and I, even in the discussion here, I feel like it's still, not the dangers uh, are not really seen as clearly as they should be. Um, for example, we're trying to get rid of some negative behaviors combined with notions of no self, etc. That's a recipe for dissociation, and that's that's a really dangerous mindset to get into. And uh, what I want to highlight here uh, in in connection to a previous comment, uh, it's worse than just hiding the things. Like we have some negative behavior or suffering and with meditation, we learn to hide it. It's, it's worse than that because while it is in, in hiding, it is unchecked and uh, can uh, do its thing without our uh, mindful gaze on it or however we will call it. So I think 
we should be really, really careful to not fall into the trap of dissociation. And I re feel that many meditation manuals don't give this danger enough credit. Uh, so that's the one thing. The other is uh, basically only a small question because we, with TMI, we have a nice manual for the waking up part, but uh, we don't have or don't have yet a similar book for the growing up. So uh, I would be happy for any book recommendations on books on the growing up that anyone can share maybe in the chat. Thanks. Yeah. That's a really good question, and I don't have a great answer for that. I mean, I've, I've had books recommended to me. Um, I had the good fortune of, of uh, having access to, to Jeffrey Martin's Explorers course, which I believe you can take if you want. Um, I know a lot of people don't like Jeffrey Martin, but um, I actually find his, his approach uh, helpful because he's very uh, sort of dispassionate about it. Like he's, he's not into beliefs, he's into, he's into evidence. Whether you accept his evidentiary practice or not, I don't, I don't know, but, but he's into evidence. Um, and so his, his approach to this is all about behavior, behaviorism and, and operant conditioning. And uh, and I don't know where he got it from. I mean, Jeffrey doesn't invent a lot of this stuff. He gets it from other people. So, so basically, it's kind of like psychology, um, but it's a particular approach to psychology. And so, so if, you, if you can afford it, um, I would actually recommend checking it out because he gives a lot of uh, really helpful advice about this. Um, and he's probably met more awakened people than anybody else in the world at this point. So he's... Um, he really is, I think, a good resource. Um, that said, there's a lot of other stuff out there. Um, and uh, the book that, that I think comes up most often is Runaway Realizations, but uh, it's not the only one. Um, so hopefully other people have books to recommend. Sadly, I do not. Um, and let's let Michael go. Um, I was wondering, have you... Ted specifically um, listened to this Deconstructing Yourself podcast with Shinzen Young, Why Good Teachers Go Bad. Are you familiar with that? I've heard people mention it. I haven't listened to you it. You haven't listened? Um, maybe, I'm not sure if you, I'm asking because um, maybe you've heard this from Shinzen Young. He says there are, uh, and you kind of mentioned this a little bit, This, which is why I thought maybe you heard it. Um, he's talking about systematic issues with teachers um, not having a kind of feedback system that allows them to see the, uh, if they're going off track in certain ways. Um, one of those you mentioned a little bit was just kind of the, the you can't question the teacher uh, type thing because he's deeper than you in insight. So he tells you, you don't ask him. Um, one, uh, some, one thing he mentions and you, I, I can't remember exactly what he says, but he says there are kind of clues in, in each one of these disasters. And he said he's been through some as well. And I'm sure if you've been uh, studying long enough and had teachers long enough, as you mentioned, you, you might come across this several times. Um, clues that that lead, when you look back on it and say, okay, so that's that's that was evidentiary that that was going to happen. Um, some of them, he, he himself was mentioning, Shenzhen, that he was on the lookout for the top three, money, power, and sex, 
and what can happen with that. But he wasn't on the lookout for number four, which he found out was um, a codependent relationship. Mm-hmm. Meaning he, if you, a teacher has a trusted advisor, even a business partner or something like that, where they start to elevate that person to a, to a status that, that has impact on their students. And even he didn't know uh, he was in this delusion that he didn't realize how far off track he was until, even when his students were telling him, until some other Western Dharma teachers, I think Jack Cornfield um, was one of them, um, sat down and basically said, no, what the fuck is going on with you? Right. And, uh, and then he realized that. So I don't know. I mean, I don't, I'm not um, familiar with Chuladasa himself or, or been in any of his retreats. Um, so I can't speak to if there were clues. I don't know if you, maybe Ted, I know that you're you know, close with, with him and his family. So I don't know if you, uh, looking back on it, if there's anything you thought maybe, okay, this is where the feedback's not getting to him, or this is where something's not looking right. I mean, and I guess if you haven't heard the things that Shinzen Young was talking about, the specific, I guess, clues, it, it might be hard for you to answer that. But that was basically my my question and kind of just to let people know that's a nice starting point to kind of start getting some context on everything, this podcast. I could put the link down there too as well. Yeah, please do. I, I think that's probably worth a lot of us reading or listening to. Um, I I haven't listened to it. I know I, I've talked to people who have. I don't know if Shinzen Young is the place where that idea originated in my uh, experience of it, but it certainly he's he's in that circle of people who who are talking about this and uh so um so did i see anything so it's a little challenging for me because i i live in vermont and chuladasa lives in arizona and i have zero desire to ever go to arizona um except to go to kochi stronghold which is a lovely place and so i've been there a total of three times um and uh so uh, they're, they're probably, it would be worth thinking about a better methodology. See you later, Lewis. It would be worth thinking about a better methodology for surfacing this stuff. Well, um, and, and so I think, um, let, me, let me stop you yeah. for a sec, because there's something I really wanted to say. Um, there's kind of, I think there's an issue with the premise of the question. Mm. Um, the premise of the question is almost, is comparing it because um, what Shinzen was talking about was pretty much when this, like the Sangha getting polluted, right? Um, you know, the teacher, you know, really just funky fucking up in what they're doing with the Sangha or just pretty much, yeah, the Sangha being polluted. And I don't think, I don't feel like that's really what was happening, right? This issue was how Chuladasa got, was or polluted. Um, and, I, and that's, I think, a very important distinction, right? Because mm. was, was Chuladasa doing something that was, you know, he was behaving unethically with, you know, the community? I mean, yes, but people didn't know about it, right? And, and it sounds like exactly what you're saying. As soon as people found out, they, they uh, you know, immediately intervened, right? And I think, you know, the, you know, they, they opened it up to transparency and I, I think they've intervened in a good way. Um, and, and I think, and the reason also I didn't sort of question the, the premise 
question the premise of the question um, is because I think it encourages undue speculation, right? That how would you know? I mean, like, are we going to be second guessing, trying to, um, you know, investigate people's past their, their lives, investigate people's relationships with their, their partner, their, their, their marriage. And at one level, like that's, I think, clearly, I think too far, right? Um, so, yeah, so just, I, I know, you know, we're, we're asking a lot of questions, right? And we're trying to process this. But I think that's just also to keep in mind that we don't, um, I think, read too much into it or um yeah read too much into it i mean i think so far as as things have, have played out i mean i think the community has been responding you know incredibly well and even like his teachers the fact that i mean his students sorry um all of his students sort of were, were willing to sort of to sign on and now it looks like chula dasa's like you know he he paused and he's kind of reflecting on this so um it sounds like things kind of were into where people intervened very like pretty early in this in a sense right and yeah. um at least at, from a community sort of standpoint right in the individual standpoint yes it wasn't early but then to 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 start getting into that you have to start getting into yeah chuladasa's personal practice his relationship with his wife um stuff that we just don't have access to right i mean maybe there was yeah, but that's that's like someone, that's like worrying unduly about, you know, what someone else did, didn't do, right? And that's, yeah, easily to go off into sort of just speculation, judgment, and yeah, that may not be the most helpful. Yeah, that's a really good point. Thanks for stopping me. I, I, uh, I, I think I was in fact doing that. Um, and I was almost going to stop you myself because I didn't want you to have to. No, it's, it's, it's really hard because like, I really want to be transparent about this. I don't want people to feel like they're not hearing what they, what the answers to their questions. But um, actually, I think I'm going to cut that with your, if you guys don't object strenuously, I'm going to cut that little bit out of the recording because I don't think that it needs to be online. Um, yeah. But uh, hi, Andrea. I, just, <laughs> I knew you'd get a big turnout. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, so... Uh, but uh, yeah, so thanks, thanks for thanks for that. That was that what you wanted to raise in general, or was that just something you were pointing out in context, Gilbert? Well, no, it was. It was I wanted to, I intervened to. Yeah, thanks. I almost intervened before you answered the question because mm -hmm. I thought um, I didn't know, and I didn't know how you were going to answer the question, right? Yeah. But um, yeah, but I'm yeah. glad still I intervened to even to, yeah. to raise the point. Yeah, thank you. So, so you do you had some other thing you wanted to talk about though? In your hand, you're next. Oh, okay. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about is, um, yeah, I think it ties back to what everyone has been saying, but there there is a lot of baggage in these traditions. There's a lot of baggage, you know, even in our concepts of awakening. Um, and I think, yeah, it's a a very good idea to be thinking about okay how can we do you know the the silence of sh the the science of sheila right um focusing more on the integration of you know practice in life you know behaviors in life um and to 
when to do that when doing that um i think it's important to be thinking about um doing things as a community right and it's easy to say hard to do but um yeah because i've i mean i said i thought a lot about sort of the sort of writing books and or, or not writing books but just writing more right but i'm like wait how do you distill into something that's per perfect and i think um, there are some people who are just a little bit better at it or like they get inspiration, but I probably, I think the best sort of types of work and writing comes as a collective, right? With a lot of people having input into the process. Um, so yeah, I think that's what I want to say. Yeah, actually, um, that's, that's a really, that's a really good point. I, I actually have a writing accountability group, but they're not Buddhists. <laughs> and, um, one of the things that I might, uh, if, if I do decide to go down that path, and I've been kind of like dithering over whether I should write a Sheila book for a while, actually. Um, if I do decide to go down that path, it would be really helpful if some of you guys would be, would take part in it. I don't know if as a co-authors or as reviewers, but uh, we could figure that out as time goes by. But I think it's, I think it's a very worthwhile thing to, to try. And I don't think that I should be doing it on my own. I agree with you. Um, and by the way, I also don't mean to suggest that nobody else should do it. <laughs> Because I just, you know, it, the thing is, if nobody does it, that's also not good. So, and I think that's, it's not that we don't have any books on Sheila, because we do, but I think that there's been so much uh, respect for the lineage, um, which I, I applaud, but we have to be a little bit braver than that. We, we have to respect the lineage, but we also have to understand that sometimes we do need to restate things in modern terms, and that's worth doing. Um, thank you, Guido. So uh, I think let's let Colin go next. Colin? Sorry, just coming online there. No worries. Um, I was wondering um, what your thoughts are. A couple of people were asking about um, books and stuff to uh, the study. Um, morality and these kinds of things, but um, my personal experience has been around just good old-fashioned um, psychotherapy is, has been my sort of parallel um, to, to the meditation practice, because I guess in my experience, I, I did realize um, through my own practice that there are um, parts of my, my psyche which are almost invisible. They're, they just go, they become such strong habits and um, that you just don't see them right? They just become, they're just your, your way of being. And I've, I've found that, I mean, I still have a lot of work to do, but um, um, I don't know if you had any thoughts on that about parallel practices in, uh, in psychotherapy, because I know it's something that Kodasa mentioned that he's going back into, and a lot of, I think uh, Shinzen said he did some psychotherapy at, at one point, and um, I yep. think there's a lot of potential in the sort of idea of virtue versus morality and that uh, morality is sort of this external knowledge that you try to apply to yourself and restrict your behavior whereas virtue is sort of something that comes up internally the sort of this we know how we want to act right mm -hmm. we know what's good we know what we want to help people and that just by exposing ourselves to ourselves almost um virtue cannot kind of arise spontaneously that makes any sense yeah, I mean, uh, one thing I would I would caution you with on that is the idea that there is a particular way that you want to be, 
implies that your mind is unified. Um, and uh, I think for most of us, our minds aren't unified. There are actually uh, different competing impulses, some of which are contradictory. And uh, so there isn't always a one way that we want to behave because there isn't a one me, right? There isn't like just, just one central core that's, that's, that's the authority. Um, so, so I just wanted to, to, to point that out first because I think that that's, uh, uh, it's important to recognize that. Um, and then I actually managed to forget the rest of your question because that's, that hit me so hard. So can you, can you maybe? Yeah, no, that, that's a good point. And, um, but the, the rest of my question was just around um, psychotherapy and, right. and that yeah, yeah. Okay. approach to, uh, yeah. it seems to be a popular sort of secondary uh, thing, which I've done. And I don't know your thoughts on that. Yeah, so I'm, a, I'm kind of a bad person to ask about that because um, I haven't had the best experiences with psychotherapy, um, not because of any fundamental problem with psychotherapy, but just because um, mostly when I've spoken to psychologists has been for uh, reasons having nothing to do with solving my problems, um, my internal problems. But um, I do hear a lot of good things about various psychotherapeutic practices, um, including some that, that aren't actually very widely respected. Like EMDR gets a lot of, uh, a lot of flack, but um, a lot of people that I've talked to who've done it have seemed like they've been able to use it to unearth uh, stuff that they needed to unearth. So uh, uh, there's uh, uh, family, internal family therapy is another one that gets a lot of good, uh, uh, a lot of good press and there's something um, it used to be called depth oriented brief therapy and now it's got some new name. I can't remember what it is. Do you know what I'm talking about Gilbert? No, but I mean the depth oriented, right? That's going into the archetypes Jungian, I think, right? Um, well, this was, this was a little different. Um, okay. I, I want to say it's like called, the problem is the new name is like so so nondescript that it's like it's almost generic. But anyway, basically the idea is is identifying um, identifying stuff and then and then creating a state of mind that's contradictory to whatever the stuff is, and trying to get them to both come together at the same time. Because when the contradictory state of mind is present, the negative conditioning is is seen through, um, and then and then it it's weakened. Um, so yeah, there are the, the, the bottom line though is, yeah, it's, it's definitely worth doing. Um, you have to be, you know, you can't just like go to any random th psychotherapist and they'll definitely work for you. You have to be, you have to be part of the process. You have to be a responsible part of the process. And, you know, is this working for me or not? Beware of the, no, this isn't working for me because they're finding my deepest inner issues that I don't want revealed, uh, trap, which I think a lot of people fall into. Um, I probably fall into it. Um, but yeah, it's, I think psychotherapy is, is definitely, if you, can, if you can find a good resource for that, is definitely something that, that you know, Chula Dasa certainly has recommended that um, for what that's worth. Um, and, I've, and he's not the only one. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I think if you, can, if you can find that resource, that's good. Um, I'd like to add or question something after you're done. Sure. I, uh, I can wait. Well, uh, yeah, why don't you hold that thought? Um, let's let Mike go next, because he's had his hand up for a while. Right. I, mean, I wanted to respond to this point, though, actually. Oh. All right, well, why don't you go ahead and respond to the point, and then, and then yeah. we'll, 
I guess I really wanted to question like whether we consider whether we should consider psychotherapy to be a virtue training at all, right? Like I would think instead that um, you know going back to like kind of a mastering the core teachings of the Buddha perspective, like you know meditation is about like working on fundamental mind structure stuff, and I think psychotherapy is more about like understanding and kind of getting clarity into your own personal crap, which is very important. But like my own experience of psychotherapy, like in talk therapy or whatever, is that there isn't really any discussion of virtue or pushing of virtue or work around morality. Mm. And so I'm not, I, w I would not consider psychotherapy to be a complete practice. And I guess I would want to be hearing more about other kinds of virtue training than that. So I guess I wanted to get your thoughts on that. So. Yeah, that's a really good point. A really good clarification. It actually, I think, ties a little bit back into something that Colin said earlier. Um, so... Uh, Psychological problems, buried conditioning, um, is uh, something that can cause you to fail in your practice, of, fail in the sense of, of, of not succeed in holding yourself back from doing something that you later wish you hadn't done or that turns out badly or whatever. So, so yeah, you're right. Uh, the, the framework of the practice of virtue is sort of orthogonal to the, to the problem of uh, unwanted spontaneous behavior, shall we say. Um, and so the unwanted spontaneous behavior would be the thing that psychotherapy will help you to uh, possibly surface or, you know, deal with or whatever. Um, and uh, that doesn't give you the, the, the framework of the practice of virtue. So you, you, you're right, you do need both. Um, but, but if you just have the framework for the practice of virtue and you don't do anything about your inner conditioning that's, that's making you do non-virtuous things, the practice of virtue is not gonna be very successful, I think. Like if you just think, you know, yeah, right, that's that thing, this thing that I'm doing right now because my inner conditioning is making me do it, isn't virtuous, that's not so helpful. <laughs> you, you actually want to not do the thing. So anyway. Um, Can I just comment really quickly? Yes. Three seconds. Um, so I would just say one comment, which isn't really a, a solution to anything, just adds more confusion. But your original comment, which is quite important about virtue, if they're not being a perfect state of inner virtue, there's actually external conflict. We can also consider that on the other side, that there probably isn't a perfect state of absolute morality, right? That we can right. research and find and say, ah, that's perfect, yeah. absolute morality. So just another thought um, to confuse yeah, the issue. It, <laughs> it all goes into the idea that things are, are, uh, aren't things, they're process, right? And yeah. so that would have to be also true of, of a practice of morality and also be true of any, anything like that. Um, but let's, uh, we're, we're, we're getting low on time and I'd like to let Mike and Peter and then Riff talk. So Mike, you go ahead. So let me, let me preface my question by saying, I, I, you know, I'm a novice both in my knowledge of the Dharma and my meditation capabilities, but I'm trying to, we, we've touched on a lot of these themes and I still am trying to make sense of something specific. And I'm going to try to ask a real penetrating question here. So, and I'll ask it in a couple different ways. So on one hand, we use the word now in contemporary language, we're using the word waking up and growing up and cleaning up 
and to mean different things. And I get that because I see evidence of that in the world. Um, I'm trying to rationalize that view with some of the more ancient teachings and, you know, the ancient teachings and my understanding of them would say that once you've proceeded far enough down the path, you're, you're able to um, sever the root of craving and you are able to see cause and effect very clearly. And I, I think that some of the lineages would, would say, and, and Colin, your question seemed to go in this direction a little bit when you talked about the wellspring of virtue coming from within. And it's the idea that at some point um, with enough advancement that it's like your, um, the, you know, the, the clouds in the sky have, have moved out of the way and maybe this, you know, your true self compassion is able to just arise and, and manifest. And so it would seem to me that if you put those three things together, the cause and effect piece, the craving piece, and this, this wellspring of natural compassion, that that would yield itself what I would call sila or, or virtue. And so I'm trying to make sense of, it, you know, how should we think about the vernacular of waking up? You know, what is waking up? How is it different from what I described? And, and then the ultimate question is really then how could this have happened if all those things come together is kind of my question. I hope it makes sense. Yeah, no, that's, that's a, that's a, that's, that's a great question. Um, so, um, and I don't think there's an easy answer to that question. I, I, I know there's not. And so, and, and, and maybe part of the answer is that, and I, I don't find this threatening personally, but it's that we have to, evolve a little bit in terms of how we're thinking about some of this stuff, but yeah. anybody's so, welcome to go ahead. All right. Uh, I mean, just, I, I've been, I've been hogging the mic. Does somebody else want to want to speak to that or. Including you, Ted, but any, right. anybody want to speak to that, please do. All right. Well, I'll tell you a little bit about the, 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 the experience that I've had in, in my wanderings through Buddhism over the last 20 years. Um, so Tibetan Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism, uh, anyway, uh, says that the state of a Buddha is actually quite a bit beyond the state of an Arhat, um, that they are not synonymous. Um, and the difference between a Buddha and an Arhat is that an Arhat is free of suffering, but a Buddha has omniscience. Um, and what omniscience means is the knowledge of what to do and what not to do. Um, and that's actually the core of what you were just asking about, right? That's, that's the knowledge of cause and effect. So, so uh, the knowledge of cause and effect, uh, I, think, I think you get some of that at stream entry uh, in the sense that you see the connection between your, your unskillful actions and the suffering that, that they cause. And also you see that the suffering that they cause is a mental construct. But there's this idea that you can see what the results of your actions will be in the world. And... Um, I think that that is a very sketchy thing. Like, I don't know how to do that. I don't know anybody who knows how to do that. I don't think Chuladasa knows how to do that. Chuladasa has never given me the impression that he knows how to do that. Um, my previous teacher, who is the Tibetan Buddhist teacher in question, uh, never said that he was able to do that. And when I asked him specifically if he could, he said no. Um, so 
if there are people who can do that, I haven't met them. Um, that doesn't mean that it's not possible to get to that state. Uh, but if it is possible to get to that state, um, we don't have direct evidence of that. All we have is, uh, unfortunately, it looks like Mike dropped off, but uh, hopefully he'll, he'll see this on the recording. Um, we don't have direct evidence of that. Uh, all we have is, is, is the theorizing that we get from the lineage. And by the way, if you look at the Buddha's life, the Buddha had his enlightenment. And so the Tibetans would say at that point that he was omniscient. But then you look at what the Buddha did after his enlightenment, and he did two things. He taught and he did practice. He did both of those things. He didn't just do one. Why was he practicing if he was omniscient? It's a question that I think is worth asking. Um, and it's very clear in the suttas, right? It's very clear. Hi, Mike. Uh, I, I've, been, I've been answering, but you'll probably have to go to the recording. Um, so, uh, so it's very clear in the suttas that he didn't stop practicing. And this is true even of the Mahayana sutras. In the Mahayana sutras, you see the Buddha meditating. You see the Buddha going into retreats. So clearly there was something that still needed to happen, or he wouldn't have been doing that. Maybe he was just showing off. I don't know. But Maybe, he, maybe there was a reason why he was doing it. So, so when you see the lineage talking about these perfect enlightened angels who don't have any problems and don't have to do anything to, to, uh, to behave properly, one of two things is, is true. Either they have, have successfully evolved into that state, um, and how do we know if we've evolved into that state? Really good question. I don't know the answer. Um, and so, so either they've evolved into that state or there's some magic about realizations that just makes that state happen. And I think personally, uh, I find the evolutionary argument to be more compelling than the magical state argument. And in fact, I think that the idea of magical states is something that drops at uh, first path. So <laughs> uh, for what that's worth. So um, Anyway, I could go on at length about this, but I, I think I've captured the gist of it, and I'm happy to, to, to say more if people want me to say more, but let's let Peter go. Yeah, this is uh, such, yeah, such a complicated topic. So many questions are uh, raised. Uh, I think that one thing which uh, I personally found a little bit misleading is that uh, arguing that what happened is due to some childhood trauma or some unresolved, uh, uncleaned up problems. I, I found it, uh, I find it a little bit uh, hard to follow because uh, if this is a repeated behavior across many years, that is not a one-time mistake. So what I want to say is that the psychotherapy, like was mentioned already, I don't think here it's uh, something we should focus on. I wanted to behave morally before I started to meditate and, and understand what is it about. I didn't want to be as even before. So uh, I don't want to hurt people uh, even now, of course. And uh, But I can see how it is super easy to deconstruct that um, moral concept which I grew up with and, uh, and make them very relative. I can deconstruct it and make it, oh, I can do whatever in this world because uh, nothing, everything is empty and, and so on. So there's very easy to reason to do such a things. I can see how, how it can be a trap. Uh, so I think it uh, really comes down to just uh, 
not relying because I, I feel that there is a little bit of tendency to rely on the meditative practice to uh, to solve the virtue problem. But I think that it's not going to solve it, right? It's a different thing. We must like not forget that we don't want to be uh, act like like morons, and uh, and the, even if we deconstruct whatever sensations and concepts we have, we don't want to forget that there are these two truths, these two worlds, and we still live in one uh, in in the one like on daily basis where we don't want to hurt other people. And I think the most important thing is really just that to build a virtue is just be very aware of that. It's not about the psychotherapy necessary, in my opinion. It's a, it's a different thing also to the practice, in my opinion. It's about like using the the results and the fruits of practice to also to to not to forget, uh, not not to build the delusions, uh, not to forget that I want to. Uh, and when I was thinking about it, how, where to what to build the morality on. The only thing I came back to was the compassion. That that's that's kind of the only thing I can, after some practice, come back to and like, okay, so I don't want to hurt other people because I don't want to, or I I want to act morally because I don't want to hurt other people. That's like the only thing I was able to uh, come back to. Um, and uh, and Rick, and also I like uh, I like what Gilbert. I, I wanted to mention I like what Gilbert said. It's very hard to like. Think about and theorize and uh, what what happened and why happened. I think I, I would like to hear from Chuladasa what he has to say about it. And uh, and I personally I'm good. I think I'm actually growing more and more uh, glad with this because, for example, for my personal experience, I realized that there was a little bit of attachment to the personality of Chuladasa and making him uh, unconsciously sane in my mind, which I saw broke down. And I'm actually happy for it because like I wrote on Reddit, I kind of feel a little bit more free now because I still, the TMI is still there. I still believe it works. It works for me. There are other teachers who teach and they have great results. There are so many people like uh, Tucker and uh, other who wrote on Reddit their own experience and it works for them. And, and I'm actually very happy still to take the advice uh, from Chuladasa on all about the TMI. I'm, he's still an expert. Uh, he's still a great teacher, and uh, and I think there is a little bit of drama around this, which I, I, I I'm going to see how it unfolds across like a month, maybe hopefully not years. <laughs> but I think actually it's a nice and healthy thing. Uh, so let's see. Yeah. One thing um, I'd be curious. Uh, I'll just ask this as a question. You're, you're familiar with the idea of vows, right? Yes. What do you think of that? I think the vows are there to uh, to keep that virtue uh, alive, right? To remind you about that, right? So, the, uh, like, I have not, I don't, I don't have any personal vows, right? But mm -hmm. I have uh, my own principles, which I grew up with, and I think it's the same thing. Uh, and and uh, just keeping this vow is probably just being like like confirming to, that's my view, right? Just, but uh, making it like, uh, confirm it to yourself and to the others that you really want to be moral. But I think the morals are all virtue. And uh, what what happened to Chuladasa? I don't know. I, well, it, it would be great if I learn over time. But uh, why are you asking this question? What, what, where are you going? Uh, I'm just asking because um, I think that 
like the, the thing that was missing from what you were saying is that I think, uh, of course, we all want, we ha having compassion is great, right? And having compassion leads us to want to not hurt people and also to want to help people. And these are very important. It's a very important to have that motivation. But then, then in addition to the motivation, having a practice to, to, uh, to pump that motivation into seems yes. like it's an additional thing. And I didn't hear you talking about that. And I think that uh, the vows, uh, to some extent, uh, serve that purpose. And I'm just curious if you'd, if you'd been thinking about that. Because um, essentially what a vow is, is it's a decision that you're making now about something that will happen in the future. So you don't have to decide later, right? Um, so anyway, that said, uh, uh, Riff uh, has had his hand up for quite a while. So let's let Riff go. Did, did someone else have their hand up also? Because I've talked a bunch already. So we could let someone else who hasn't gone yet. Uh, so the only other person who currently has their hand up is Tom, and Tom has also talked, so. Okay, then I'll go quickly. Yeah, this one was a little bit less of a question, but kind of something I've been um, sitting with a lot and noticing and just finding really, really fascinating, which is I think this is a really interesting chance to um, get some insight into kind of the difference between sort of procedural knowledge and direct experience knowledge. You know, so if I can give a little bit of an analogy briefly, I became a vegan about three months ago. And, um, you know, for me, this is now this like really obvious truth. And I, um, part of me finds myself like wanting to argue with all my friends and colleagues about like why I'm not a vegan, why they're not vegan. Like, why are they destroying the earth or acting unethically or whatever? And I don't do it. And the reason I don't do it is because I have this imaginary conversation in my head. And the imaginary conversation I have in my head is I say to someone, why aren't you a vegan? And they say, well, why weren't you a vegan for 46 years and I say I have no idea and they say that's my reason <laughs> um, <laughs> like um, I didn't get any I didn't actually get any additional information that helped me become a vegan something inside me and my perspective changed but like all the arguments were arguments I'd ex been exposed to for decades and they never did anything and so similarly like we've seen this pattern happen over and over again like this information with Chula Dasa I mean it's, it's new information about him but it's not really surprising unless you somehow believe that like Chula Dasa was different from all other teachers and you had no reason to believe that. And so, you know, if you're really shocked now by Chula Dasa in particular, like what's that telling you about your own processes and, um, you know, what have you really learned? Like what's really changed? And so I'm finding, you know, kind of meditating on that and thinking about it to be really fascinating. I just wanted to share that in the hopes it was useful. I certainly think it was. Thank you for sharing that. That's a really great insight. I, I wish that I'd known that when I became a vegetarian. <laughs> yeah, that really resonates for me too, Riff. Thanks. Yeah, that's great. I just wanted to push back a little bit on something you were saying earlier, Ted. Mm -hmm. uh, it sound, what I heard, anyway, was that you were implying that the Buddha practicing after his enlightenment implied that there was more to be done. And I think there's value in thinking of practice as just maintenance, you know, like taking a shower every day or sleeping every night. Yeah. That's, uh, that's another reason for doing it. That's all I had to say. Thanks. Yeah. No, I, I think that's, that's, uh, that's a perfectly reasonable thing to say, but that still implies that if he didn't do it, there might be some different outcome, right? Oh, well, if he doesn't take a shower every day, he'll start to smell after a while. Exactly. Well, in fact, I think that, that uh, if, you, if, you, if you study the, uh, the explanation for all of the information about how the monks' robes work, 
you, you might get gain some insight into how often they showered. Um, <laughs> but probably not worth dwelling on that. Um, all right, we've, oh, uh, Kevin's got his hand up again. I just wanted to, to mention, by the way, um, because I've been just answering people's questions and not really saying what's going on from my perspective, uh, that uh, first of all, I've noticed uh, myself um, wanting to uh, explain things away in certain ways, and I've come up with explanations that have later proven to be incorrect. Um, just in the course of the last week as more information because I've been I have access because I'm a close student of Chula Dasa's I have access to information I can't really ethically share with you but um, which I don't feel like I'm depriving you of knowledge that you must have so so please don't be frightened but um, but uh, the point is that that you know each time I hear about this so when this originally happened the first time I heard about this was when the board shut down my access to the Patreon feed and I was like What's going on? And so my initial reaction was, well, somebody must have accused him of something, but obviously the accusation was false, right? That was my assumption. But they have to deal with it. That's the, what the board, the board is responsible. They're doing the right thing. So I was expecting at some point to hear that everything's been wrapped up and we'll just go back to the way things were, right? That didn't happen. And um, then, you know, the next thing was, uh, well, actually, I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm not sure what the next thing was. It's been, it's been kind of a journey. But, but the point is that I've gone through several different stages of like trying to explain what happened. And I think that one of the things that we all need to do is recognize that the way that we explain this is never going to fully explain it. And to some extent, we just have to be left with uh, what am I going to do? What's my practice going to be? And that's where I'm trying to focus. And, and even just thinking about like, you know, what's going to come out of the conversation with Chula Dasa and, and will all, will everything go back to normal? I mean, I think that there's, there's multiple possible paths that can come from here. One of them is that things will sort of a little bit go back to normal and they'll never go exactly back to normal because, you know, we have this history of what's happened and we know that it's happened and Chula Dasa doesn't dispute it. And so it's not just a wild accusation. It's, it's something that we can accept as having happened. Um, so we're not going to go back to normal in that sense. We might go back to Chuladasa being a resource in the way that he's been in the past, or it may be that Chuladasa's uh, mental condition is sufficiently compromised that that's not the right thing to do, which doesn't mean that we then, hopefully doesn't mean that we then just ignore Chuladasa because he's no longer of any use to us. Um, <laughs> that would be, a, I, personally, I would find that to be a tragic outcome. Um, and also I, I, I think that, you know, Chula Dasa enjoys talking about this stuff and we enjoy talking about this stuff. And I would hope that there's a still an opportunity for us to continue talking with Chula Dasa about this stuff, whether he's able to continue in the same, same capacity that he'd been able to continue in the past. But we shouldn't just assume that, that everything is going to go back to normal and be just fine because, you know, that's not the way that things go in the world. The, we, we live in a world where the, the suffering of, of change exists and, uh, even if we, even if we're able to transcend suffering in the sense of not not having that be something that creates suffering, still things change. We, you know, the opportunities that we have are present when they're present, and then they're not present at some point in the future. And so, if we have opportunities right now, we should take advantage of them. Um, and we, we should we should be looking for what they are, and not try to imagine that they're something other than what they are. Um, 
and uh, you know, I think for my own part, one of the things that, that I've learned over the years is to not worry too much about the future, to just accept that things will change and, and let that knowledge that things will change affect how I interact with what's going on right now. So uh, Kevin's got his hand up and then Guido. Yeah, yeah, real, real quick, I don't wanna take up too much time, but I really resonated with what Mike was talking about and what really occurs to me is uh, where to go with practice now, being a dedicated tech TMI practitioner for a couple of years, having just been introduced to some other practices. One thing that's really resonating with me this week is the extent to which I call them heart practices. I think in Shinsen's term, it, it's nurture positive. There's a whole other set of practices that seem on another track from the doc, you know, the traditional TMI track that are seeming to be increasingly important. And I wonder sometimes whether when people are talking about Sheila morality, sometimes it feels like a mental exercise. And yet there are practices I'm wondering, which if you do them like meta and related things, where if you're feeling the connection with other people, somatically in your body, instinctively, you're going to be less likely to go down some of these different directions. See that some of these might be actual practices, right? And so what I'm looking forward to Ted and all you guys, more experienced people is taking TMI Shulurasa himself has said, we want, you know, I want my teachers to take this in a new direction. And maybe this is exactly what we're talking about. For us younger practitioners, having the guidance and assistance of the permission, as it were, to take TMI, but supplement it with other practices that could help us have that feeling, you know, that could be, bring in that additional guidance. You know, I mean, I, I'm sort of rambling here. Maybe we could talk about it more, but it feels like there's maybe other ways to incorporate TMI to a broader practice that would, you know, help. Yeah. Well, Kevin, you just went through the, the I don't know if you don't mind me mentioning it, but you, you went through a course just recently that uh, contained a lot of practices like that. Finders course. So, um, you know, I, uh, my practice has been informed both by TMI and by my Tibetan stuff and by, uh, you know, Sogyal Rinpoche and other, uh, amazing teacher who also had some ethical problems. Um, and also, and I don't mean to lump Jeffrey in that, but uh, also Jeffrey's stuff. Um, and I think that, yeah, I would, I, I agree with you, Kevin. I, I think that, uh, you know, one of the challenges that I have right now is trying to figure out how to integrate all of the stuff that I've been given from all of these wonderful sources and put it into uh, something that, uh, that will, you know, do exactly what you asked. Go for it, Ted. Go, it, 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 do it, do it, buddy. Yeah. Well, not just me. I mean, I think I think we should all be thinking about that because, as you say, it's not just one of us, right? It's like like you know, we all have our own unique view on this, and I think that, uh, you know, for some of us it may be writing a book, for some of us it may be teaching, for some of us it may just be practicing, but but we all need to figure out, you know, how to go on from here. Uh, Guido has had his hand up. Let's let Guido talk. Yes, just uh, I just wanted to mention some quick things. Uh, the first one is something you said on, on Reddit that really resonated with me. You said that you can't put this toothpaste back into the tube. And so it, that really represents how I feel. So I don't think it can ever go back to uh, remotely close to what it was mm -hmm. and uh, the other point is that I'm 
for me, uh, if you're teaching this this uh, spiritual path, and uh, then you go on and do this, commit this gross, uh, very very gross bad actions. There's some other comment on Reddit. Someone said, "Not even I would do that." So it, it's it feels a little bit like the the teacher is selling a snake oil. So they're they're selling like they're they're selling something that is not true. That mm. it. Uh, I think Kevin, what Kevin just said, just uh, sort of gives a path uh, into resolving that. Uh, but I also, uh, moving forward, I would also be very interested in what you have to say because because of what you've been through uh, from your previous teachers. So I really think that book would be very interesting. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's definitely some work that can be done to, I don't know, to, to, to guide, to yeah. guide us all. I, I personally, right now, I, I feel very lost. So I, I had a very strong set of purpose for the last two years. Mm-hmm. And now I could really use some. Yeah. What, what, what was it that you were really hoping for? What started you on that two-year path? It, I, I think reading uh, TMI and, and, and uh, looking up to, to Larasa, like sort of made me feel like, I, I come from a Christian family, so it made me feel like being like Jesus was not impossible. Like it, it was yes. a path. There was a set of practices that you could do, and you could actually become like him. All right, I think and, that's a wonderful aspiration. <laughs> yes, and 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 that's what I want to do. Yeah. So, so I mean, you know, you, you, I, I'm, I'm assuming you're familiar with the Gospels, then. So Jesus, at one point, pretty much said, "Yeah, you can do that." Right? You, you, you remember that part? One of, uh, one of his one of his students comes up and asks him, "How do I become like you?" And and he answered, "He didn't say no. You can't do that." So, um, yeah, I think that. Um, and I, I, I apologize. I, I I haven't been raised in a Christian background. I just happen to know about that because my Buddhist teacher told me about it, because he was raised in a Christian background. But um, yeah, I think that that's a that's a wonderful aspiration, and um, I think. The thing, I mean, I, I can't remember exactly what Jesus said in response to that, but but I think one of the two things, oh, I, I, was that when he said, love thy neighbor as thyself? Do you remember that? I mean, obviously you remember that part, but. No, that- no, I, I, I'm not sure actually, no. Yeah, I, I, I sort of vaguely think that that was the context in which he said that, but um, but it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, I think that that's the essence, right? Like, you know, can I, can I be like Jesus? I don't know, but uh, if I can, uh, certainly that would be a piece of advice to follow. Yes. Uh, and I think uh, one thing to uh, keep in mind there is that this is an aspiration for yourself and not yeah. an aspiration to project onto your idols. Right. So. Yeah, very good. Exactly. Yeah, so, um, I mean, one of the great things about Jesus is that we don't get to see him every day. So, 
you know. <laughs> so, so we yeah, can project some idea, right? And I think it's I think it's wonderful to have to have aspirations like that. And and all I can say, I mean, I I would I you know please keep coming and and uh, keep asking me that question, and I'll I'll try and help you with it. But um, it's a beautiful aspiration. I think having that aspiration is is uh, a key element to achieving it. So, thank you. Yeah. All right. Uh, we've gone longer than usual. Not surprising. Um, thanks everybody for coming. It's really great to see you. Um, and uh, you know, please keep coming, and, and uh, we'll see how this all comes out. Hey Ted, uh, I just wanted to mention before we go. Uh, Sorry if I put you on the spot with the question. I think my question wasn't clear and uh, I don't know really what I was asking. I think it was just like, I don't know what goes on there. So I think I was just trying to. Yeah. This find is more. the nature of communication. <laughs> we never really know what the other person is asking. We don't yeah. really know exactly what we're asking. We just try and we see what comes of it and then we move on. So yeah. And I just want to say, I appreciate that uh, you trying to be as transparent as possible. And it's very clear from the, Reddit forums that you've been completely even handed on and facilitating discussion on all sides. And uh, so I just want to thank you for, uh, for doing all that and for c coming here and doing the same thing. So you're welcome. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Ted. Mm -hmm. yeah. You're welcome. All right. We'll see you next time. <laughs>